0: Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal, lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history, I converted to Catholicism. And just as I went on a long, interesting journey, I read a book that really resonated with me. And this is my book review. And it's the story of Kenneth R. Gwyndon. Kenneth Gwyndon wrote a book called The King's Highway El Camino Real God's Highway to Peace and Happiness, found again after detours on Jehovah's Witness and Protestant paths. Kenneth Gwyndon, who was born in 1939, was raised Catholic. And he became a Jehovah's Witness. He became a leader in their church. And then he eventually saw through the lies. And he became an independent Baptist pastor. And eventually he found his way back to the Catholic Church. And he's got an amazing story. It's published in 1996 by Ignatius Press. And it's an absolutely gripping story, particularly if you want to know about the cultish behaviour of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So he was converted at the age of 17, like many Catholics, as he says he thought he knew the whole Bible from generations to revolution, but he didn't know it that well, and he was no match for a Jehovah's Witness woman who outwitted him and won him over to their cult and he talks about their controlling behaviour he talks about how when he became a Jehovah's Witness it caused a rift with his family he says on page 28 I refused to go on camping trips and to celebrate birthdays or other holidays I spent weekends helping to build a new kingdom hall or meeting place. As I got deeper and deeper, my family life deteriorated. My stepfather forbade me to continue studying with Ruth. He said the witnesses were a bunch of communists because they wouldn't salute the flag or fight for their country. And that's true, Jehovah's Witnesses are pacifists. And he goes on and writes, he asked me, what would I do if the commies attacked our home? Would I defend my mother? The question hurt. But nevertheless, it was a good question to ask anyone who is a pacifist. And he writes on a bit further. He talks about how he got a girlfriend in the Jehovah's Witnesses and she ended up breaking up with him because the Jehovah's Witness leadership told people not to marry and to wait for Armageddon and he he was a, a French ancestry so he spoke French fluently and he wanted to go as a Jehovah's Witness missionary to Utah presumably to convert the Mormons but they actually sent him to Maine and I've been to Maine it's in the northeast corner of America and it's right next to the French speaking region of Canada and there's a lot of French Americans in that area so he got sent to Maine in the middle of the freezing winter and he had a pretty tough experience. He tells a story about how at one particular town the people in Maine were very hostile to Jehovah's Witnesses because he says a Jehovah's Witness had killed a man. Now for a pacifist cult, that's pretty reprehensible and unexpected. And later on, he when he went as a missionary to the Ivory Coast, and I'm jumping ahead a bit on page 69 and page 45, he talks about how in the Ivory Coast, a Jehovah's Witness had killed a man in a fight. (coughs) And he says that if he got sick, he would have to make up for the hours that he lost in lost time. And Jehovah's Witnesses have to buy their literature, the literature that they hand out, the Watchtower magazine and their other magazine, Awake, They have to pay for it out of their own pocket and they hand out their magazines and if people are good willed enough they'll give them some money in contributions to the cost of the magazines and the Jehovah's Witnesses have to give that money back to the Watchtower Society. In other words they have to pay for the pleasure of being a volunteer of working for free And any money they get paid for the literature that they've paid out of their own money, they have to give to the Watchtower Society. And that, of course, sounds like a classic scam. On page 55, he talks about how they especially hated clergymen, and they think that their critics are demon-possessed. Nevertheless, he worked so hard for the JWs and they were so impressed by him that in 1963, he ended up getting a job working in the Watchtower headquarters. It was also because they had international visitors all over the world coming there and because he could speak French, he was able to translate for French visitors. And he says how in 1966 they began predicting that Jesus was going to return in 1975. And many Jehovah's Witnesses sold their homes and incurred debts they never intended to pay. Which is very sad. And on page 64 he talks about why they're very fanatical about their beliefs When questioned about this, about their problems, their false predictions, Jehovah's Witnesses will make excuses for their leaders. Why? Because they are unable to envision any alternative to their religion. They have given so much and worked so hard that they can't face up to the possibility that they might have misplaced their trust some JWs have told me that should they ever discover that they have been wrong, they will simply live for themselves and have nothing more to do with any religion. And so he continued working in their headquarters and he tells stories about how when they woke up early in the morning they had to rush up uh, the three or four stairs at a time to get to breakfast in time or they would be punished given hard jobs to do and he went to the Ivory Coast in 1968 and I myself, I could relate a lot to this because I actually grew up as a Protestant missionary kid in South Africa. And I particularly uh, like what he says on page 77. One of the problems I faced was that many of the young people that's in the Ivory Coast lacked any sense of time. But they didn't like to say no to the white man. I would make a rendezvous with someone who said he would come to my house but I would then be obliged to spend an hour waiting for the person who often wouldn't show up at all. This caused me to lose time and feel frustrated. Sometimes I would meet the person a week later in the street and ask him why he had missed the appointment. He always had a good story to explain it. And that's what they call African time. When we were in South Africa, church meetings were like that. they would uh, we would turn up on time, and we would find one person would turn up half an hour later, and about two hours after it was the time it was supposed to start, the meeting would begin and it would finish four or five hours after that. It was just crazy. Very different culturally. So anybody who wants to go as a missionary to some of these places, that's uh, something you've got to take into account. And after he'd been there for seven months, he got really sick and it turns out he had polio. And this is where he had a real shock, a real wake-up call. The Jehovah's Witnesses did not pay a cent for his medical care. And they refused initially to pay for his flight home. The French government paid for his care and he was helped by his non-Jehovah's Witness family. And he was now greatly cynical and disillusioned. And he increasingly started to see the Jehovah's Witnesses as a business like his own insurance job now one of the Jehovah's Witnesses he worked with in the Ivory Coast was a lady called Monique and she ended up becoming his wife and so Kenneth and Monique were now back in America and he was very cynical and disillusioned with the Jehovah's Witnesses And he began examining scripture verses on the deity of Christ. And he eventually found himself asking, well, why do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in two gods? They believe in one supreme almighty God, Jehovah, and then they believe Jesus was a god with a small g. And I've met Jehovah's Witnesses, who I will quote Isaiah 9.6, says that, that, that Jesus is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, he's the mighty God, but he's not the almighty God. Which is utter nonsense, because that's exactly what the Hebrew means. So he began reading a book on the Trinity, And he eventually had a discussion with a Baptist pastor and he accepted Christ as his God and his saviour. And he notes how it was forbidden to talk to ex-Jehovah's Witnesses or read any material criticising JWs. And he did his last field work for the JWs in early 1973 and he found out that his wife had accepted the true Christ at about the same time as him. He'd been praying very hard for her secretly and she came to the conclusion he did. And what he was unprepared for and came as a real slap on the face, though, is that when he left the Jehovah's Witnesses, they cut him dead. And there were people that he'd known for many, many years, and he was completely disfellowshipped. But he felt very happy in his new Baptist church at Van Nuys in America, the first Baptist church, and he even converted several JWs. But within a few short years, the Baptist church that he was going to fell apart due to divisions, which is so typical of Protestant churches. And the whole division was over the charismatic movement. There were some Baptists who said, yes, we can speak in tongues and do miracles. And there are others who says, no, no, that's all ceased. And because there's no Pope to settle, or church councils to settle the differences, they just go their separate ways. And so he found it very demoralising being in this big division. And then in 1977, he began planning for a mission trip to France, which, as you'll recall, he was a native French speaker. He was very anti-Catholic at the time. And he was keen to convert the many French people who were either secular or Catholic. And he did something that sounds insane by today's standards, but it's very common and I can relate to a lot in my own experience as a missionary kid. He says they had to sell their house, their car and their furniture and their kitchen appliances to get an aeroplane ticket to France. But they took with them a library of a thousand books to France, theological books, to defend his faith, to refute Catholicism, uh, massive commentaries of the Bible. When I was a missionary kid and we went to South Africa, we did a similar thing. We didn't sell our house, but we did... uh, Sell our furniture, and in massive boxes we had uh, possibly hundreds of books—not a thousand—but we had many, many books. And the whole five years we were in Africa, we a lot of those books we never even bothered reading. So it was a bit pointless doing that. Uh, the biggest travesty, a regret I look back on, is we we brought most of those silly books back to australia when we should have just given them away to the locals but anyway that's a side issue getting back to the story of kenneth Gwyndon, and so in 1978 he began his missionary work in france and he worked in an interdenominational fellowship and on page 141 he tells of a very funny incident which i couldn't help but laugh at he, he went to this interdenominational fellowship and it was made up of lutherans from germany and austria uh, baptists from america and from britain and brethren and anglicans from england and very and pentecostals from different parts of the world and it was this whole conglomerate of protestants who were anti-catholic and they met together. But the only thing they really had in common, apart from some, from some very bare essential doctrines, was that they were non-Catholic. And he tells an incident about how the preacher got up one night and he said that they that there was some people lost at sea who wanted to have communion and they used orange juice because there was no wine. And he said, tonight we're using apple juice and Kenneth was offended and he got up with his wife and they stormed out and after they left a French pastor, a visitor who was there went to his car and grabbed a bottle of wine so they were able to have wine afterwards but the overseer rang him and said well why were you so offended communion is just a symbol anyway what does it matter if we use apple juice And then he read a Catholic book by a former Protestant woman who had converted to Catholicism and she quoted the early church fathers in defending transubstantiation and baptismal regeneration. And he started attending ecumenical meetings at a Catholic seminary in Bayonne. And he was impressed with how much they loved Jesus. So, while he did not know Catholics, he got a lot of anti-Catholic propaganda, both as a Jehovah's Witness, then as a Baptist. But when he started to actually meet and interact with Catholics face to face, his impression of them changed. And he says how he's evangelism in France consisted mostly of street evangelism where he would read scriptures or he would have a stall with an umbrella with lots of New Testaments and French literature which he would offer to people but he found very, very few people were interested. They were either secular people who wanted nothing at all to do with God or they were... Catholics and he says some of the Catholics were very genuine people who believed in it but a lot of them and this is absolutely true and sadly true a lot of people that are Catholics it's just a cultural identity and he then talks about he became increasingly disillusioned with how divided Baptists were And he tells an incident about how they were divided on issues, on things like uh, wine, can you have wine in communion, or should it be grape juice on the King James Bible, is it God's only Bible, or is it... uh, And he says how they talk scornfully about those wine churches. Because when he'd go back to America, he would need to get support from a wide variety of Baptist churches. And he ended up changing for a very legalistic Baptist church, which is called Landmarkism and the landmark Baptists are people who believe there's an unbroken line of Baptists from the Apostles to today, which is absolute rubbish. And he went and did some research on it, and he couldn't find any evidence for ancient Baptists. Instead, he found increasingly evidence for 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 Catholics in every century but not Baptists and what came as a very disillusioning experience was when he went back they had strict rules in this particular Baptist church he says on page 163 we never held a communion service at the Baptist mission in Perpinon, our particular Baptist beliefs required that the mission be organised first as a church before the Lord's Supper could be celebrated. This meant that if we should spend five or ten years in the field without being able to establish a church, we couldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. Even though I understood the reasoning behind this, it was a great sacrifice for any Christian to make. As time passed, I began reflecting more thoughtfully on our situation. Here we were, Americans in France and very strict Baptists, so rigid that we were not permitted to cooperate with other Baptists. We insisted on stringent requirements, some beyond reason. No wine, no pants for women, short hair for men, re-baptism for all who joined our church. I was beginning to think that we were not much different from an invading virus. We were pushing non-essential Protestant ideas and American culture on Catholic Frenchmen in the middle of a huge wine-producing region. Our kind of Baptists went so far as to refuse to believe that Jesus turned water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana. They claimed he turned the water into grape juice. I never believed this. Clearly, many who qualified by God's grace for entrance into heaven would never qualify for membership in the church we hoped to found. I began to feel boxed in, and I wondered if I hadn't painted myself into a corner. And he also reflects later on on why the reformed church had been in France for centuries, but it was considered too austere by the French people. The Reformed Church is like the Baptists, so like a very plain, dry, drab church. And a lot of Protestant churches are like that. They have churches that resemble a civic centre. Whereas a Catholic church has stained glass windows, statues of Jesus and Mary, paintings of events in the Bible, candles beautiful churches, and I think in many ways it actually reflects the French culture. Now, I'm not a great expert on French culture. I'm just an Australian, but I believe from my impression of what I've seen of the French people is there are people who love art. There are people who love paintings and sculptures and they like bright colours. They like positivity. They like a festive culture. And the dry Baptist and Reformed traditions of Protestantism are nothing like that. And that may be part of a reason why those churches never really made much impact on the French, whereas they did make an impact on Britain and Scandinavia and northern Germany. In other words, they made it in cold, austere climates where people are very doer. But they didn't have much success in countries like Spain, Italy or France where people love art and they love the beach and they love culture and they love life. Instead, they had more success in countries that have six months of darkness. That's just my opinion, my perspective on that. And then he, he, he found some Bible verses that seem to say that baptism saves you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 and Acts 22, verse 16 and a few others because Baptists say that baptism is just a sign. And he then began reading the writings of Cardinal Wiseman in 1835 and read his arguments in favour of Catholicism. And he found himself very much compelled... He also looked at the history of Catholics persecuting Protestants and atrocities and he says we don't condemn an entire nation for the acts of some of its leaders. This is on page 172. We don't condemn an entire nation for the acts of some of its leaders or for the actions of a part of its people. We recognise that no nation or people has a perfect history. God never rejected Israel during her periods of infidelity and idolatry. He he purposed to bring in something better, something more spiritual based upon a better covenant and a better sacrifice. And then later on, another thing happened. A godly priest, a charismatic Catholic priest, befriended him. And he was able to answer a lot of his questions and he encouraged Kenneth Gwinden to read the Church Fathers and he began spending time in a monastery and so he was becoming increasingly drawn to the Catholic Church. He was also feeling more and more disillusioned with the Baptist Church. He'd spent years at this time in France trying to convert people and he tells a story about how on one occasion they mailed out to 15,000 people in one particular area and they got one response and it was from a struggling single mum with a lot of personal problems. And in all his time in France, he converted no more than about a dozen people that he got to attend his house church that had no communion, and they sort of came and went. They didn't really get any, any much growth or anything. And as he got more and more towards Catholicism his wife became very upset and he tells a story that makes me cringe on page 189 where a nun visited their house and Monique got into an argument with the nun and it ended up with both of the women crying. But eventually he he and his wife were won back to Catholicism. And he resigned from his mission work with the Baptist Church and began going into lay ministry. And he describes it as a highway near where he grew up in California, the King's Highway, or in Spanish, El Camino Rail." And he described that this was his highway to peace and happiness. And so I would encourage you to read this book, The King's Highway, by Kenneth R. Gwyndon. Gwyndon is G-U-I-N-D-O-N, by Ignatius Press, 1996, and I hope you've been greatly encouraged by this testimony. God bless you, and thank you for listening. Bye for now.